1: Hey Hustlers, we know that this 2024, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with challenges. An often overlooked aspect is the time-consuming task of processing payroll and managing government requirements. And did you know that the average admin spends a whopping 50 hours per month dealing with just government compliance? That's time you could be spending on growing your business, or let's be honest, taking a well-deserved break. But fear not, we got a game changer for you. Introducing Sprout Solutions and their tailored solutions for MSMEs called the Payroll Starter. With Sprout Solutions Payroll Starter, you can finally reclaim your time and get your life back on track. Visit sprout.ph slash payrollstartermonthly5k. If you missed that, don't worry. We have it in the description box of this episode. So click that too. And again, big shout out to Sprout Solutions because your time is too valuable to be spent on paperwork. Reclaim it with their payroll starter. Now let's begin this episode.
2: The Hustle Share Podcast is brought to you by PDAX. PDAX is a homegrown cryptocurrency exchange that offers the best rates among local cryptocurrency exchanges. Download the PDAX app now on the Google Play Store, App Store, or Huawei App Gallery. Start trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies for as low as 50 pesos by signing up on podlink.co slash hustlesharepdax. Also powered by pod machine the simplest way to grow and edit your podcast sign up now at podmachine.com and use the code hustleshare to get one free edit
0: and even software development jobs being outsourced right it's not enough if we really want to be successful we have to be building startups and startup products and so I think from that standpoint was where I came down with look I need to partner with people
2: welcome to hustleshare. The podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now, here's your host, Ronster Betiong.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of the Usher Podcast. We got OGs in the house. I literally remember the very first time I did a pitching competition. I was just one of them dudes here, right? And... Little did I know that that was just the beginning of my torment uh, in the startup ecosystem because again, being a greenhorn is literally around 2012, 10 years ago when I started doing this uh, startup life. But without further ado, these OGs have done amazing things over the past decade and stood the test of time, which is rare in the startup ecosystem. So let's welcome to the show. Dave Overton and Albert Tudden of CIF. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank
0: you.
3: Thank you.
4: <laughs> I love,
3: I love this.
0: it. Okay, energy, <laughs>
3: you That's still great. have a lot of energy, That's given it's been a long
1: time. Huh? <laughs> That's the constant, man. That's what it is. So, again, welcome to the show. It's always nice to see you. Been forever. Uh, we've had a lot of shared memories at the at our, our beginning, right? But before I get carried away, I need to ask you the million dollar question. Guys, what's your hustle?
0: <laughs> so yeah, our hustle is Synth, um, and Synth is a software development company, but, Apart from that, it's really something that we built so that we could build startup products, so that we could build startups within SIMP, you know. So I would say we're something like a venture builder, um, but we bootstrapped it from the beginning. Um, We've always been active in the startup space. We've had many attempts at at getting a startup product to be successful. Um, We failed a lot. We've learned a ton, but yeah, our bread and butter has always been SIMP. Um, now, we don't just see Symph as a service company. Um, we're actually really in a transition since about 2020 to how do we become a full product-based company.
1: Wow. And again, you 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 guys are the OGs here. Before we talk about product failures and you know eating a lot of humble pie and trying to uh, bring that over, we have to go all the way back. So I need you guys to buckle up. I'm going to have to go all the way to the Queen City to pick you up and ride uh, because again this is something it's a seven seater I always say it because we're gonna have to ride the Hustle Share time machine <laughs> alright there you go I'm Whoa. now in Larshan alright we're all the way back before we talk about Sim I need to talk about the origin story so again before uh, we dissect I just wanna give a shout out to Albert because I remember the very first time I met you. And this was it's it's bittersweet because when we did this, I was so naive, borderline, an idiot about how startups work. I didn't even know what startups were. So I met you first in on three startup pitching competition. And the promise of the <laughs> the promise of that competition was whoever wins it gets it in Silicon Valley. And I thought when you make it there, you're like straight up funding right away. So just give a backstory before you even talk about Anthony. I just have to get this off my chest. Because after that was at least a year and a half of struggle that I did. After sort of like making it to the finalists and whatnot, I resigned immediately, effectively immediately. The day after. No
3: way. I did not know that.
1: I I was going to say...
3: When you said you were like a stupid, like stupid or an idiot, like I was gonna say like so am I, but then you said that you were stupid, I was like okay, that's a bit more than how stupid I was back then.
1: No, I was Damn. stupidest. Wow. And then of course, long story short, never made it, nothing happened, and I was broke. I never wanted to go back to corporate. I was broke. <laughs> For a good year and a half, just trying to make guestlist. back then, happen. So I just yeah. need to get it off my chest, because I that, that was how how that far we've come and how
3: stupid I was. Back then. By fire, man,
1: oh by my raging
3: God. inferno.
1: Yes. All right. So before I get carried away, I need to ask you guys your origin story. So I'll I'll start first with Albert, since we started with you. Okay. So you are the CTO. So you are the tech guy here, obviously, right? But before right. uh Sim. Again, I met you when you had spell dial, but before that, what was your origin story? Were you really a tech enthusiast coming in because again, a little bit, your brother, who's been here before again told you that you you're a big uh influence to how he eventually created his career. but since you are Dakuya, what was your origin story because there's always that heavy influence. What influenced you though to be in
3: tech? I didn't think that I was going to be in tech, so hmm. I actually initially wanted – when I was in high school, hitting college, I was initially thinking that I was going to be – I was so enamored by this guy named Nikola Tesla that I was, like, thinking, like, you know, I just want to be even, like, half the man he was, like, you know, invent, Mm -hmm. like, carry on his inventions, continue it on. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to become an electrical engineer. Wow. And so, yeah, I told my dad, hey, Papa, I want to become an electrical engineer. There's this Mm -hmm. school, um, San Carlos – they do that electrical engineering course. This is how much. And
1: then my dad, during that time, we were very financially um constrained. And then right. he I said- I remember George saying that you guys were moving from town to town because that's part of the job. Yeah, yeah. My
3: my dad's a contractor, civil engineer. So it's like right. feast or famine, right? There's a contract like, wow, yep, we've got everything. And then in between projects, it's like, oh, so tough, like really hard. You would have to sell properties and so on. So mm-hmm. we were in this in between and- I remember telling my dad about that, and then he said, "Like, oh, electrical engineer, ah, uh, oh, okay, w- let's pray about it." And I, was like, <laughs> ah, I didn't like that answer, right? Like, let's pray about it. And so I remember, like,
1: "Saint pray for us." There
3: you go. <laughs> <laughs> that summer, I mean, I. I believe in prayer, but I was like, I didn't like that answer, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that whole summer, I kind of like rebelled. Like I was just yeah. every day, I was kind of like in a computer shop, like just playing every day. I didn't want to stay home, like just escape reality that I might yeah. not, you know, go into the preferred school that I wanted to go and the preferred preferred course. Yeah. And then somewhere along that time, I got an, a scholarship offer mm. from the school I was in. This is CIE. And they were like, we're gonna bring you to college. And at first, my thought was like, I don't really like this because CIE is like a business school, and I don't want to take business, right? I mean, I like I think I like CIE, but not the not the course. That was not my. I wanted to become an electrical engineer. Then when my dad heard this news, he was like, Oh, answered prayer. (laughs) 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 And so I was like, Oh, really? So I dragged my feet eventually to the school on the last day of registration. Like, I was really holding out hope for me to be able to get this electrical engineering course. But then eventually, I was filling up the forms. And then this registrar asked me, like, hey, Albert, what are you, you know, what's your course, business or IT? And in that moment, I was like, I have a choice. Nice. And then in four seconds, literally, I I, I took the IT. Not because I wanted IT, but because didn't I wanted not want, want business. business. Yeah, because I felt like, you know, business was obvious. I was so wrong. but I felt like business was something that you don't, like, learn. You just, you know, it's something that who you are or something, man. I was so naive. But then, right. so I I picked IT because I didn't want business. And, yeah, I fell in love with it. In a couple of months, I just fell in love with computers and what you could do with it. And that's
1: kind of, like, how I got involved in tech. That is amazing. Now, after that, okay, then we'll just uh, push forward before you guys converge into meet each sure, other. Sure, sure. So, after you, you guys, uh, you did college, but were you trying to tinker and build products while you were there. And walk us through what type of stuff were you, was even in. Do you want to, you know what, do you want to take an honest story? Yes. (laughs) And then also, what type of stack were you even building at that time? Look at this now. It's all Web3 and shit, right? What, 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 what What was in back then?
3: Okay, well, the honest story is I spent my days you know, doing Friendster and Facebook <laughs> and same a- guy, games. dude.
4: <laughs>
1: this is college. Testimonials um, on everyone. Oh, huh. Yeah. The,
3: I think we need to explain what Friendster actually yes, is. Those right? friends. <laughs> it's pre-Facebook. It's like the Facebook before Facebook. Yeah. And then, you know, I think what the, the game changer for me, the thing that kind of like set me, um, set my path on a different path okay. was when I had like a, I had a Tito who said to me like, hey, you make websites and stuff, right? And I was like, mm, not really. And he's like, I'll pay you to make my website. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, money. And you know, I was I was broke. I was in college, and like, it, money sounded interesting. So I was like, yep, yup, yep, yep, sure. I I'll figure it out. You know. And then so he asked me. I remember him asking me like how much, and I remember quoting him like the biggest number I could think of at that time, which was just like four thousand pesos. Like, and I had a hard time saying it. Like I was like, 4,000 <laughs> pesos. And I remember him paying me on the spot. <laughs> and I was so shocked that somebody just carries 4,000 pesos you know, yep. around with that to pay for a website. And so, yeah. And for the next two months, mm. three months, I think, you know, I, I went from computer shop to computer shop to build this website. And I learned everything. I mean, it wasn't, I ran out of, I ran out with the money for like, in like two weeks.
4: So I was <laughs> making it a rain. <laughs>
3: yeah. I was borrowing from my dad money uh, to like fund this, Um, you know, my commitment to, yeah. to finish his website. Cause this guy, my Tito, I see him in church every Sunday. Oh, and no. so it's really hard <laughs> to like, you know, every Sunday you're like, Oh, he's there. I don't have an update. So yeah, the pressure was so much. And I, that's how I, I learned. I was still in second year in
1: college with this. So this That, was the that start forced of my you concept. to really self-learn, which is the key in programming yep. in anything product-related. Actually, no, in entrepreneurship, you never just Everything wait man. for yeah. you know whatever spoon-fed because there's no playbook. And sometimes you know you're North Star, but you have no idea how to get there, and you're going to have to figure it out piece by piece. But last question before we go to Dave. So, after your first few ones did you was that a continuous uh thing, or was there another pivotal moment to say, "Hey, I want to build product," or did you do some side hustle yeah. building shit for people first yeah, so okay
3: the the truth here is I was also involved in like wanting to help the community mm-hmm. right like so i Every Saturday, every weekend, I would go out to this like the slums, and I would raise money, and I would, I would do like a feeding program, and I was doing that regularly, raising funds from from my college classmates, from social media. But it was getting harder and harder to raise funds, yeah. you know, because we sure knew everybody wants to support you. But then after a while, like it kind of like ties down, and gets fatigue. harder and harder to, yeah. And so I was running out of money to to run this feeding program. And then I saw the news that YouTube was bought. It was just bought by Google for $1. $1. $1.7 billion. And YouTube was just around for five, six, I forgot, like very, very few years. Right. And I was like, this happens? Like this can happen? And so I was like, I'm going to build like a YouTube. Like that's what I'm going to do. Right. And that's how I then, you know, because, you know, if I got all the money, I don't have to f- f- uh, raise funds. I can just help people. And so, mm. yeah, that's exactly what I did. Um, I then came up with some ideas um, there were many of them that you know sucked as well uh, but then that's how then spell dial started spell Dial was one of those
1: ideas I got really excited about It's like
3: this kind of like a YouTube level um, you know or, or so I thought right kind of idea
1: now let's go all the way to the other side of the world and check out the origin story of Dave here because again Dave you grew up in the states uh, studied in Baylor also in San Diego I think uh, also. yeah but where did you grow up how was it growing up in in the States, and was there any flashes of entrepreneurship that you really uh, had growing up as well?
0: Yeah, so I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is right on the border of Mexico, Um, and I grew up in... Yes, very good street tacos. Um, I miss Mexican food. That said, I grew up in a great family and my dad was in IT. And so he actually was like old school IT, you know, IBM punch card. He went to those trainings and did that type of stuff. So there was, there were always computers around in my life. You know, I built computers when I was a kid with my dad and you know, I remember convincing my dad to upgrade our computer so I could play a video game, and the upgrade was to eight megabytes of RAM. <laughs> right now, now you can figure out how old I am, um, because that was actually a thing, right? You know, now we're in the gigabytes and soon the terabytes. But I just grew up with technology, and so I always loved it. I was always the geek, um, you know, in school and all the way up. And when I went to university, I originally didn't really want to do it. I was like, I'm going to do medicine. And then I talked to the college counselor and and I, I so appreciate this lady. She just laid out like, okay, here's what your medical degree is going to look like. You have four years here and you're going to do medical school. That's another three or four years. Then you have your residency, then you have your specialization. So you're looking at about 12 to 14 more years of school. And I looked at her and I said, I just finished 12. I I don't think I want to do that. And she's like, great, (laughs) just change your major. And I was like, sure, no problem. And so, you know, I thought about doing IT, but honestly, I... I just got bored, you know, because I had learned so much of this in my life that, you know, I just didn't find the classes challenging. And that sounds super arrogant. And it probably is. I was I was undisciplined then, you know, I I should have just stuck it out. But I found I found something that I loved and I went after international economics. And so, wow. you know, I loved math. I loved doing calculations and thinking about things like that. Got it. And then I had always traveled um, the world. And so I was like, look, I I love the U.S. Um, you know, I, I love certain things about the U.S. I don't love everything about the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that nuance applies to anywhere you live, you know. And so I wanted to go somewhere. And then I would also say that part of where I came from was I wanted to do something that was impact driven, you know, and, and similar Got to it. Albert. When I first came to the Philippines, um, my focus was trying to have an impact. I helped my wife start her charity. Um, so she runs a nonprofit organization. And so obviously like helping people was something that I was passionate about. And I also saw technology as an enabler to be able to do that. You know, how, how could we change, um, you know, and have radical impact on the way that people transact or the way people are able to lift themselves out of poverty? And how can technology really empower that? So that's sort of like the history.
1: That's amazing, and I just want to zero in on several things because again, again, looking just looking at your LinkedIn, I'm not a creep, I'm not, I didn't research, (laughs) I mean, I sort of am, but um, I'm I'm basing all of these uh history from your LinkedIn. But you were in entertainment prior to even getting to to the Philippines, right? And that's. That's out of left field. But again, looking at it from an IT point of view, what did you learn yeah. in, those, in those experiences before you even got to the Philippines and, and moved here?
0: Yeah, so um, the entertainment, actually, I was here. Um, So when yeah. I first came to the Philippines, it was um, 2003. So next year will be 20 years. I'll be oh in the Philippines for 20 years. Yeah, And so when I first got here, I actually you know, and going back maybe to your point of origin, like I was an entrepreneur. I don't know why or how, but, you know, I just always wanted to do my own thing and start my own thing. Um, You know, during college, I worked just so I could pay my college tuition and and live. Um, And I worked in a coffee shop. I worked in Starbucks, right? I was a barista. And so when I first
3: came... You got to tell them how old you were when you came into the Philippines.
0: Yeah. Okay, I was 22. I was 22 wow. when I moved to the Philippines. Yeah, and I like in the same year that I graduated from university, I got married, and then we both moved over to the Philippines. Um, and we were 22, and yeah, so I I was just like a young kid. I thought I knew everything.
1: Um, uh, but and you, you know, moved to Cebu straight up. Moved to Cebu straight up. Yeah. What was Cebu so, like do in 20 years ago? Because again, I've. First, I really yeah. got uh, in, exposed to Cebu as we know it. it was, I think, 2013. Because there was okay. a sprawling that there was already an IT park. Not the yeah. IT park that we know that you see now, but there's Ayala yeah. and whatnot. But what, what was that like when you first came? Okay, so
0: I mean, I'll base it on IT park, right? So IT park now, tons of, of huge high-rise buildings with a, a lot of BPO, KPO workers. Yeah. <laughs> IT park, when I arrived was like a park literally there was just grass fields <laughs> everywhere and the roads were wide and I loved it wow. because you know as as someone who grew up in America where right. we have wide open spaces I was like this is perfect and I would literally go there and I would walk and there was a small building one story building I think it was called the village and it had restaurants in it right and where, then some of my
1: friends uh, the steak air, would play the steak thing is still there uh Zubuchon yeah is there
0: Yeah. So now they like, you know, they leveled it and then it was rebuilt again and and stuff Ah. like that. But yeah, I mean, literally the only tower in it park at the time, I believe was globe, Um, you know, and, and it was, that was it. Everything else was like wide open space. And so yeah, there was no traffic. I liked Cebu, um, but I liked it a lot more than because you could just get around with ease. Like everything was ten to fifteen minutes away. Yeah, it was it was a magical time for Cebu, and you know I'm reminiscent. So of course, like I'm romanticizing the memories. There were probably challenges <laughs> and stuff like that, but um, you know it was it was a different it was a different time definitely. And so you know going back to entrepreneurship, right. you know I came out and I was like, okay, there's really no like great coffee shops here. I'm gonna start a coffee shop. Right. And so Mm. that was sort of what I wanted to do. And I started looking into that. And then I was like, okay, you know, I'm really going to have to do, I'm going to have to do some fundraising to get this started. And so then suddenly I hear that Starbucks is coming in and I'm like, huh, Starbucks is coming in. Okay. Mm. This changes the landscape because, you know, my, my sort of like, I'm a Starbucks barista appeal, just sort of, "Mm, it's not going to cut it anymore. I'm competing with, with the siren. Right. And so I started talking um, to Starbucks people and they were like, well, you know, do you want to work here for six months and help us train staff? And so I was like, sure. So that's what I did, because I just figured, you know, at the end of the day, I don't really know anyone here. Um, I can work here. I can do, you know, this job isn't hard for me. Um, I love making coffee. I'm happy to train people. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did for six months. So I helped like open the first store. Now, through that, man, I got so many great connections because people were like, why is this white guy working here? You know, (laughs) so it was really cool. And I just got to meet a a ton of great people and I got to make their coffee and I had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I really sort of contemplated like, okay, do I want to do my own coffee shop or do I want to do? And so I decided, you know, I don't want to do this. I have technology. I was programming. You know, I was building websites. I was doing all of that stuff on my own independently and then i really did you charge 4k i I charged a little more than 4k (laughs) Um, but i I would say i would say my point though on that for any entrepreneur is like whatever price you think you're starting with it's wrong it's way too cheap because yeah our own psychology of money and our relationship with money from growing up just makes us think in the wrong terms and so yeah you should always question your pricing before throwing numbers out there Uh, lessons even in SIMF i had to learn (laughs) some of our first projects i i yeah we we underpriced incredibly <laughs> but yeah that being said i i think it was great to just come here and to be here and so how did i get into entertainment um it was actually a meeting in starbucks you know i met one of the producers from this company and he had moved out from la and he was here and he was like what are you doing you know and so we got to know each other and started talking and then he brought me into bigfoot I was in a different role initially, um, but then I went into IT and became the chief information officer there. And so that was like the last thing that I was doing before I sort of went back to my entrepreneurship. And yeah, it was a crazy, it was crazy. Um, it was a lot of fun managing tons of data. And, you know, this was at the, I would say sort of the threshold of when digital film was really coming into play, you know, so we, our company was one of the first to have read nice red hardware and and that and we had to deal with how do we store all of this data um and yeah we had funny solutions and we had sands and we had everything else in between but it was it was a ton of fun and i learned so much about just the entertainment industry i would say um in some ways it ruined movie watching for me because now i know (laughs) every scene i see i'm like i see what they did there Uh, but yeah it's it was a lot of fun
1: all right now last last question before we take I'll go back to Albert here because again, I met you 2011. You're doing dev work, right? And, uh, I mean, you, you already had spell dial. What was the continuation of your story, Albert, from again, doing being a, a, a dev in school to deciding to be a founder? Was there side hustles or first gigs that you had to do in between, or is it straight up founder stuff right away?
3: Yeah. So. CIE was a business school. So one of the the programs actually there, one of the um, courses that you had to was to build your own business. Mm. So we were constantly, my, me and my classmates were constantly demanded or one of the requirements was to really come up with a business. So mm. we kind of founded like many businesses that would run for like two months and then we would call it quits like because, you know, I didn't really like it. So I did like a food catering business. I did the online grocery business actually.
1: Wow.
3: Yeah, I did an online grocery business but without the grocery. I didn't find <laughs> any grocery that drop would, shipping. You know, there you go. Yeah, we were trying to do drop shipping for this but no Chinese businessman that we talked to who own a grocery would trust us. You know, we were a bunch of, you know, college students, right? So but I, we had built the software for this, um, yeah. So that also didn't work out, and then eventually Spell Dial. So Spell Dial was the kind of like the the m- first more serious thing right. that I right. did. Yeah, I think it really got serious because of On Three. I think mm. you know See, before <laughs> On
1: Three. <it laughs> that On Three, yeah. it's you. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before <laughs>
3: On Three, I kind of saw myself as like we were gonna change the world. For the sake of it, right? We're gonna build, you know, (laughs) this. We're gonna, we're gonna build a software product that we're gonna launch out there, and it's gonna be great. Right. Then On3 happened, and kind of like the idea of fundraising. Yep. Back then, Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think I would, you know, would use this term actually. Um, I won't use this term now, but back then I think (laughs) it was so true. The idea of fundraising corrupted my mind. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh my God. So. So, I I mean, I think up to that point, everything I felt was kind of going right. We were like going after um customers, users, marketing, pushing, doing everything it takes to like do the right things in, in startups. Right. But then the idea of fundraising suddenly came in and now we we're spending our time thinking about equity shares, business plans, creating slide decks, right? Like figuring out a pitch, memorizing these pitches, figuring out like, suddenly everything became about like how to fundraise versus actually how to build a good product and how to put it out there into the world. So yeah, I was naive back then. Um, (laughs) At least you didn't quit the job. (laughs) Not that naive. But I did have a job to begin with in the first place. So I don't know if given the situation, I might have done the same. I would (laughs) would say I was pretty excited. Oh Well, one of the the more naive things I said, I think I, I did back then was, I in in terms of fundraising, I was being put in front of like billionaires, right? Yes. Like I had like my friends, we would be pitching to billionaires, have breakfast with like legit billionaires, and then I would make my pitch, and then I would say, I want your a million dollars, and I'll give you five percent. You Yee. know? Yeah, I mean, like I thought like this was like a standard Silicon Valley rate, and so I mean, just <laughs> just do the same thing here in the Philippines. <laughs> and I remember like they would look at me with and be like, oh no, like. I mean, you. if we're a million dollars, you kind of need to give us a bit more than that. And I was like 22 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, these sharks, these sharks, like these investors, like they're just evil. Right? Oh my I gosh. remember feeling capitalists. like capitalists. Yeah. Like, oh, they just don't understand. Why does nobody understand? Like, you know, we're so, both idiots.
0: Like, <laughs> valuation, valuation. And thank yeah. you TechCrunch.
1: No, but it's true. Again, it's I had the same experience. It's like, oh man, this is it. I'm gonna. I my family was, uh, you know, coming from a lower middle class family. Now we can, I can start ticking off stuff. I can probably buy my mom a house and all these things, and will, everything. Everything is just gonna be smooth sailing back then. Little did I know that I was gonna get <laughs> into the worst phase of my entrepreneurship where I'm just gonna struggle to stay even alive, right? But again. How did how did that humble you, Albert? Uh, when when the when when the shit hit the fan and humble pie is on your on the front of your table, how did you then snap and like oh I'm being an idiot? Two years, man. Mm. Two years that
3: I kind of isolated myself. Got it. Uh, I was I was afraid not afraid more of like I actually didn't realize then that I was actively doing this, mm. but fast forward today or to sometime later, I look back and I realized what I was doing, right? I wasn't attending like social gatherings. I hated it every time. Like whenever I would go and meet somebody and they would tell me, Hey, Albrecht, how's speed dial? And I would like, Ooh, like in my mind, it's like, number one, it's spell dial. And number two, <laughs> it's not going well. So I have to put up a smile and like, it's okay. It's okay. But yes. it's like, Oh, it's not okay. And so I remember getting traumatized by this. I think mm. always just one after the other, you know, I felt like I, my identity was strongly, tied to my business that was not going well. Mm-hmm. And I remember for about roughly two years, I kind of like avoided people who knew that I was doing this kind of business, got it. right? So I was beginning to not like it. And, and mm-hmm. it took me two years of just processing this. Mm-hmm. I remember even then, like, because um, it was a bit complicated because I think I had, you know, my, my parents got involved, my business partner's parents got involved because we were kids, mm-hmm. right? They got involved and they like, they were fighting for shares of their children. Oh no. <laughs> well, you gotta oh. give my, my my kids some shares, like you know. Oh, and my, my dad would be advising me, you gotta get your shares. And by the way, I have this friend who wants to invest some money on this.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I was like trying to protect all these things, and then but it wasn't really going well. So yeah, I remember being so stressed by that and kind of like slowly like pulling away from social right. uh, circles that I had, right? Mm-hmm. And and I did this for roughly about two years before I kind of resurfaced and came to terms and acceptance that Failure is part of growing. Failure is part of this journey. And yeah, so it was a slow eating of humble pie if you yeah. think of it that way.
1: And again, every startup entrepreneur that will listen to this, still that still happens now. Because every single time, you know, we will all meet up. Probably 70% of the room are people who probably have a very short runway there or struggling mightily. And they're going to try to put up a face. Say, How are you? Yeah, we're doing good, bro. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody's doing good in a startup meetup. But you have to understand, coming from there, all of us are struggling. Even those people who have raised Series A, Series B, Series C, doesn't matter. Sometimes that is actually a bigger um, you know, burden that you have to live with. Because funding means higher expectations. But majority of the time, if you go to a room, I can read in one look if this guy experienced the same pain that I do. And I respect that. I would actually more respect if you come clean and say dude I'm struggling right now hook me up rather you come into a sur- social circle or a meet up and say hey we're doing well cuz everybody's not doing well bunch of yep. majority of that, that that room has pain and I can read pain <laughs> through the eyes because I've <laughs> lived it you can uh, see it yeah, yeah, eyes, yeah, I do. No, you know yeah. you're, you're so yeah. you're tipsy and you are in pain right <laughs> <laughs>
0: I 100% agree.
1: Let's take our first break. And when we come back, let's talk about how you guys decided to work together and created Simp and did an amazing company that stood the test of time and still doing amazing stuff till now. But let's talk about that more after the break. Ready to pop the
2: question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
1: Hey guys, I have a very, very exciting opportunity I want to share with you guys. If you're a B2B startup founder, listen up. Your ticket to growth is here. Introducing Impact24, the Philippines' largest B2B SaaS challenge. We're back in the break. We are still with uh, my OGs, again, who suffered and, again, ate a lot of humble pie when we were young. (laughs) I I love talking about this because, again, we've we've come a long way as a startup ecosystem. When we were doing this 2012, man, in one room, you'd probably see 95% founders who are as naive as us trying to say, hey, we're all going to change the world. And you have those uh, limited... You know, VCs are people that have a little bit of liquidity that understood tech. Well, again, was also in infancy. It was a totally different thing. Because even a couple of years after, when we were doing Geeks in the Beach, it's totally different, different scenario. scenario what we, what see, we now. see now. But but before we, before talk, we talk about that, let's, let's talk about you First. You first. From, From your, your point, point of view, view, when did the idea of the, the idea Sim come along and how Sim did come along? And how Albert, did, he you Albert, to did you actually have this yeah. come to fruition?
0: So the idea of Simf came along when I was finishing up my career, you know, as the chief information officer in, in Bigfoot. And I was I was thinking like, what do I want to do? And I just thought, you know, I wanna build products. like I really wanna build startups. Um, and so, you know, I had been reading all TechCrunch and everything else like that uh, during this season. And I would say, though, I I wanted to do something that would still have impact, right? So I was kind of at that forefront of like, where's this intersection of having impact, living in a developing country and knowing what technology could do here. And then also seeing that side, you know, as Albert, you know, point blankly said, like, okay, and a $1.7 billion exit gives me a lot of flexibility to do things that would have an impact. And so that was sort of the origin of it. And then when I was starting at the company... At first, I just said, you know what? I need to go and learn, like, what are the problems that people have? Because I've been in this corporation for so long. I've been sheltered. I've been inside. Like, I know what problems we have, but I don't know the markets. And so I just thought, okay, I'm going to sell myself as a consultant in the tech space for a little while, and it will help me, you know, have an income. I won't, you know, my wife won't be wondering, like, why we can't have dinner tonight. Um, so <laughs> it, it gave me, it gave me oh, a little can, bit of flexibility.
4: There you go. Yes,
0: exactly. I, and I'm so it's like, oh okay, how do I do this? And so I started out just consulting and I built relationships, you know, and, and I, I got to know a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners who were here and just started building out the services. Now, simultaneously around that time, two of the, the actual OGs of, of say the Cebu tech scene, Tina Emperor and yep, Mark Fuenconsejo. They were starting what was, what would become tech talks, right? And so the idea was it would just meet up in a coffee shop and Tina was based in, in the US at the time. I want to say in the Bay area. Right. And then Mark was working here at a company called care sharing, which was sort of one of our first. Tech startups in Cebu, and I was like, okay, I'll go check these guys out. I'll get to know them. Mark had actually worked at Bigfoot, um, a, a sister sort of company division before, mm-hmm. and so I met up with him, and then yeah, I got involved. Next thing I knew, I was on the incorporation of Tech Talks, and <laughs> and, and I was running this you know Tech Talks scene with Mark, right. and that was really what sort of got me started in this ecosystem of just okay, how do we build a community around this? And it was at one of those events that we had a pitch night and none other than Albert Padden with his product, not speed dial, spell dial, Dang. was pitching. Um, and I remember like, uh, you know, just being, I was impressed with his pitch. You know, I was like, okay, the product, I'm not, I don't know. You know, I like it. It's sort of like DNS for phone numbers. So I could see it working if we can figure that out. But just his presentation capabilities were yep. sort of worlds apart from the others who were pitching at that time. And so I was like, you know, I just want to get to know this guy. Um So yeah, after his pitch, he and I talked, we just sort of, you know, had a casual conversation and started chatting and... Yeah, I guess the rest is sort of history.
1: All right. Let's talk about Albert's point of view on this one. So when, when, Dave, when you met Dave in this one of these pitching sessions, well, it wasn't even a competition because when I say competition, it gives me nightmares again, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Night-
0: <laughs> it was not. We were not giving funding or anything. Uh-huh. It was just sort of like pitch.
1: Right. How did that relationship with Dave flourish over time and how did Siv become the next step together? Because typically... I see this, especially in the early stages of the startup ecosystem. People think it's zero sum. Oh my god, there's a dev. I will compete with that dev. I will not share, mm-hmm. I will not share anything with that dev. You know, so it's like silent rivalry right there. But you guys ended up working together. How did that happen?
3: Yeah, okay. From my perspective, I think I met Dave in the pitch night. That was like the early days of spell dial. That was the beginning, uh, pretty much like within a few months. And so uh we didn't really do synth until like two years later. So I mean, we just this Dave to me was this guy that I met in the many meetups of tech talks. Got it. So he was just that guy, and I saw some of my friends like start working for him, um, like you know, freelancing for him. I just saw that, but I, I just just talked with him, um, Mm -hmm. and just we chat up during meetups, and that's but that's pretty much it, uh, for like the next uh two years. And and I want to just add this note. Back then, I remember thinking to myself like. I'm gonna build Spell Dial, and I remember, you know, especially with the, with we talking with Giorgio Flores for, mm-hmm. you know, how he was running Plug and Play Tech Center and the startup ecosystem and the plan for how to, you know, bring the, bring up the startup ecosystem of the Philippines. Part of the plan was to have like a, a mani pakya of startups, like the poster um, boy, right, or poster girl or whatever. Like, we need to win, right? And I remember thinking about this that okay I I, I can do this and yeah. part of the important details that needs to happen here is that it can't I can't partner with a foreigner because <laughs> if I partner with a oh. white guy and then <laughs> I <succeed. laughs> it dilutes it yeah it'll just be like yeah that's a template that's the formula partner with a white guy and that's how you succeed in the startup ecosystem so I didn't want to partner with a white guy it's going to be Filipino pure Filipino like Mani Pacquiao And then we're going to succeed. And it's going to inspire a lot of Filipinos to also do startups because it's possible. So I was trying to consciously avoid partnering with any white guy. Actually, that was my thinking in the beginning. Eventually, I just realized after partnering with Dave after two years later on, I was just, oh, my gosh, I forgot my creed. Like, I forgot the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can be like an example for inspiration for Filipinos because now my template is partner with a white guy. But yeah. I will argue. Dave was here since 20 when he was 20 years old, and so he's he's Filipino he's already. There you he's agree.
1: as as far as I'm concerned, he's Pinoy. <laughs> there you go. But more more than anything, also Albert, till now, 10 years in, there's few candidates, but there's still no Manny Pacquiao startup. I agree. That's I agree. That, that's how long agree. it takes to nurture this thing, right? right. That's, that's not bad. But we have. Candidates now. Back then, there was nothing. We were yeah. all just hoping and praying. Can't even create an MVP or even have uh, yeah. a little bit of traction. So, what was then that that moment? That, all right, bro. Let's work together. Let's create. How did Sim start? The truth. Mm-hmm. I was broke. Okay.
3: I was broke. Been running Spell Dial for for years, mm-hmm. and I can't even like afford to like go to a movie night with my girlfriend. Oh wow. Right. And so I was like, oh, how do I, how do I do this? Like, you know, so I started like doing freelance work. So I worked Mm part-time for Dave. I remember like, you know, that that's how it started, working part-time for Dave. And then eventually, like, as I was working part-time for Dave, I think three, six months in, I, we just really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed working together with Dave. And I remember one time he's, he brought me out to Maya. You know, we had like a dinner and drinks it was actually my first time to ever have a margarita. I remember. <laughs> um, and then I was like drinking this thing. Like, oh, this is how it tastes like. It's like has salt. Like, why, why do they put salt there? <laughs> and so, and then Dave was like, you know what? Like, why don't we take this to the next level? Let's partner up. Let's get, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's take this to the next level. Let's be serious about this and do software development and startups on the side. And I was like, I mean like working with this guy.
1: Let's do it. Right. Sounds good. But Dave, from your point of view, why why was it a partner up conversation? Because I've also seen, say, outsourcing or dev shop models where you just want to keep all that equity to yourself and just run yeah. it. And everything is just sort of evolving. It's, it's seat-filling at that point. It's musical chairs. Like, all right, whoever's going to be here and whatnot. But what was with Albert and what was the dream then to come up? Because... This is hard. I empathize with this a lot because my second startup after guestless.ph failed was a dev shop. I had the <clears> same ambitions, which is okay. I'll build chatbot products and build product on the side. I never get to build products on the side. Yeah, it's hard. But how? What it's was that harsh. vision? Uh, to 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 work with Albert and what triggered you to get him on board as a partner?
0: Yeah. So you know, I think. I think just a couple of maybe um, perspectives on like the backstory. So Albert and I, we knew each other. We talked a lot, um, but it was always just my vision was always, how do I help him? How do I help him succeed? You know, and I think I went, I forgot all of the competition names, but, you know, he needed like a board member or something like that. So suddenly Dave became like a board member, Um, you know, and I told him, like, I don't want equity. I'm just an advisor, right? Like, just put me on paper and and I want to help you. And that was really my intention. Like I wanted Spell Dial to succeed. And so much so, I remember even when he came to me and we talked about doing freelancing and stuff like that, I was like, look, I just want to help you, you know, pay your bills and, and live, but I, I don't want to take you from Spell Dial, right? Like I was very intentional and I communicated this a lot to, to him um, mm-hmm. and his co-founder, which is, was his girlfriend at the time, now his wife. You know, I just really told both of them, I don't want to steal you from spell dial, right? Like my intention is not, I, I want you to succeed because I think what I had learned and to answer the second question is, you know, in, in Bigfoot, we, we did, we had BPO and KPO and, and part of the company. And so I had seen that model and I knew that while that was good for the Philippines, you know, call center jobs and, yep. and BPO and KPO brought a huge middle class to the philippines and so economically right in my background i'm like this is really good i also knew that's not enough right and and even software development jobs being outsourced right it's it's not enough if we really want to be successful we have to be building startups and startup products and so i think from that standpoint was where i came down with Look, I need to partner with people um, because at the end of the day, although you know being very candid, equity in the Philippines is is kind of worthless. Um, you know, if, if we really if we really talk about it, right? Because right. we're not exiting. What what's our exit strategy? We're not IPOing. We're not, um, you know, we're usually not getting bought out. Now there's a few exceptions, you know, similar to the Manny Pacquiao's, right? We don't necessarily have, but we have some smaller exits, which are great. And, and I, I'm really proud of the teams that have done that. So this isn't, this isn't to belittle their success, but compared to what we're reading on TechCrunch and compared to the exits that we're sort of ingrained or indoctrinated to believe in, mm-hmm. Philippine companies are very different. We, we just don't have that model mm-hmm. and market yet. But I wanted people who understood that. And I wanted people who felt that I valued them as a partner and not just as an employee, even if they had the C-level title. I right. wanted it to really be partner level. And and so that's what I did. And that, that was my vision. And Definitely. It's taken us way longer to be able to build product, you know, on the side, um, yeah. because yeah, building a company, no matter what you're doing, it's hard and it's, it takes you way longer than you're going to anticipate. Right. And and I think that's the one story that is often overlooked in the success stories that we we look at. You know, whether you look at Uber or YouTube or any of these companies, it took them a lot of time building a company. You know, Nest, like the book that he wrote Build is a great read, but one of the things that I took away from it is man, this is going to be hard work and yep. you're committing to decades of hard work. It's not just two to three years, pancake swap, I'm going to flip it and run. This is really like, you're looking at decades of work before you get to be successful.
1: That's absolutely correct. I remember the Caliber boys saying this, an overnight success took 10 years of hard work you know, and sacrifice. But here's one, again, I want to dig deep here because funding was non-existent at the time. The only way to get this done was to bootstrap. And again, you're coming in from Cebu. Right, The talent, whether it's in Manila or Cebu, to build a dev company is very scarce, right? So, I want to now find out. And if you're going to build a dev, dev shop model, coming from experience, I hope I knew this, hindsight being 2020. I thought it was going to be a lucrative business where people fucking pay on time. It's going to be a cash flow rich business. And motherfucker, it was so hard because all of a sudden, all my cash is stuck in AR, in accounts mm-hmm. receivable. But yeah. hindsight, going back, how did you guys start? Because you are still alive in 2022 as you're recording this, right? You've made it out. I technically, my, my dev shop's no longer around. I sold it. Uh, the acquirer pulled the plug. What was that like? Especially the first few wins, the uh, first few wins you got. You cannot drop the ball because it can literally kill your startup. <laughs>
4: I mean, <laughs> I
0: you want to take this one.
1: <laughs> oh man, that's laughter uh, of pain, by the way, for you guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah.
0: It's, These are like painful memories, you know. And, okay. and again, I think it's if we knew what then what we know now, man, it, right. we we would have done, done, done a lot of things <laughs> differently.
3: Yes, I think to be honest, I feel like the easiest route, if I were to let go back in hindsight, is I would immigrate to silicon valley and just do it there right Uh, that would be my game plan that would if i wanted to accelerate everything in my personal life like that would be like immigrate to silicon valley just do it there
4: Hmm.
3: this is like the wrong place to do this thing right you know startup stuff so but okay let's talk about like how did we survive Mm. How do you get your I...
1: first wins first? Uh, and then first wins. the early painful lessons that you that you learned? Dude, I felt like it was... Well,
3: number one, things to note. I took a very low salary and Dave did not take any salary. Wow. I, I don't... Yeah, so, sacrifice. yeah, that's one. Number two, I feel like we were running a Ponzi scheme in the sense <laughs> that, that we would do a project, right? Then we would... Pay our workers, but th- that would still be AR, right. right? And then we would close a deal, but the the accounts receivable for that would be like six months down the road, and we'd have to just keep going so that we can keep paying our people.
1: Correct.
3: And and we we ran we ran that kind of selling move.
1: invoices. Did you guys sell invoices?
3: No, we did not. I don't think no. there was anything like that back then. No. Um, Dave, what magic did you do, Dave? I, I mean, I think we
0: just, we just played the cash flow like a, as game as best we could. And yeah, I would call it a Ponzi scheme, right? You know, we were, <laughs> it was just literally like, as long as we can make payroll and rent and keep the lights on, um, we can keep going for, you know, another, another month or another 15 days. I, you know, I think in terms of like first deals, yeah, we definitely knew that we had to deliver, right. We, we had that mindset and so we, we just committed and we definitely lost money on, on most of those deals, right? Like we, we weren't able to price for what we were delivering just because number one, we were new, you know, the market as well. Like we were looking at local clients here. And so their, their value for IT and, and software development was, was really small back in the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think we just built relationships that we figured out how to, um, how to build relationships with some key clients. And so. Right. You know, yeah, around think, that time. Yeah, go ahead.
3: I was also going to add, like, but I think we also were able to pick the right people. I think mean, credit to Dave on this yeah. one. Right. So that we were actually able to deliver well. Mm. So I think it would be not so difficult to collect because yeah. we they didn't have much issues Correct. with, the, the you know, the delivery. Usually right. there's a big gap when, when websites, at least back then, you know, the design would come out and then you build a website and there's a gap. And then that's where you start, like, <laughs> right, having like, complaints
1: and whatnot. Right.
3: Yes, because they're not going to pay because it's still lack- lacking. There's a bug here and so on. Mm-hmm. But with us, I think uh, we, we got some really good people. Yeah. Also, we have another co-founder, Dan. He's, he takes care of design. Nice. Really, really great guy. Really, really good designer. And so I think having the combination, I handle tech. Dan handled design. Dave handled the business stuff. Having this, like, three co-founders, you know, looking out for different parts of the business and being able to focus on that, coming together, delivering according to, you know, near, very near expectations. I think we are yeah. able to collect close to on yeah. because of that. I think that's one of the biggest factors.
0: I would agree with that. And I do think that, yeah, we aim to exceed expectations. You know, I yes. can't say we always did, but definitely like customer happiness and delivery and support were very important to, to just the mindset um, and the way that we were working. And, you know, again, I think those are sort of startup principles that, that just even from, even from a service delivery business, which is very different from a product business yep. um, just understanding your customer and and being able to satisfy their needs and being very conscientious about what what is their value? What do they value? You know, and, and there's great like agile methodology and frameworks and, you know, et cetera. But yeah, just understanding that it, it does come down to individuals and their interactions and what's important to this individual and how do we make them happy? So I would, I would say that. And then, yeah, you know, finding talent, I would definitely say Albert led on that. And, and we were able to get a lot of people excited about what we were trying to achieve and do. And they bought into the vision that we had. Mm-hmm. And for, say, the first maybe five to six years of Synth, that was really a huge factor. And, you know, networking in the developer community, he was at the forefront of of sort of the GDG scene and things like that. We were also doing, you know, Startup Weekend, right? Like we brought it to Cebu and and all of that. And so I think we were just connecting with people constantly to try and find who's talented and how do we bring them on board. Then, you know, I think even in the early days, we were having product ideas, Mm -hmm. but we also realized that we can't just build it ourselves. It's really hard to fund these things. So how do we partner with larger companies who have things? And so, you know, our first I would say our first product as as a company of Simp was MLE Pay, which was where we partnered with Mloviere and we wanted to build a basically a cash payment gateway. You know, so how do we enable people to use the the hundreds or thousands of branches that Mloviere had nationwide? To buy things online, but paying cash, you know, cause cash was still king at the time. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, honestly, it was not the success that we had hoped for, right? Like we printed this poster and we had it in the first SIMP office and it was like, we will be the PayPal of the Philippines, right? Like that was our vision. We were just, we were going for this thing. Now we didn't get there. It was successful though. You know, I can't remember volume of transactions, but it was quite large. A few other. Very successful startups built on top of us. Um, so, you know, coins, some other e-commerce ones, I won't name all the names, but they built on top of our, our platform and they used us and that helped them succeed. Now. Financially we didn't really we weren't happy with the results, right? Because our expectation was we're gonna be PayPal. Right. <laughs> so in a lot of ways we probably should have just managed our expectations in reality. But we ended up um we sold it um to Inlullier, so they they fully acquired it years later. Nice. But yeah, I mean it was it was one of those like learning opportunities where yeah, our vision was huge, um, our expectations were huge, and then we came crashing down with reality. You know, and and just looking at e-commerce, I think. Yeah, cash on delivery was just so much easier, right? Even walking to an employer branch was still so much more painful than just waiting for the delivery guy to show up and handing him cash. Correct. And you know, now the market's come a long way. So GCash and, and Maya and things like that have made it much easier. But yeah, those were the early days of e-commerce in the Philippines.
1: I, I want to uh, nail down on one thing. Because again, you're going to have to network to find the best talent out there. Right, and you have ambitious goals, whether it's for a product, it's or it's for a you know an outsourced dev work. But talent, in order for you to create great results, whether it's a product, or a service or whatnot, requires great talent because your technic, the output that they're going to be able to do is directly proportionate to the type of work they're able to do. And majority yeah. of the time, when you hire someone, they're not ready to contribute to whatever your standard is. I want to understand because. I'll just track back to what George said. Here. What he learned working with you guys is so fundamental in what he's doing now, in building product, building process. That's, that's indelible. And he said he's forever, forever going to be grateful for, for doing that. But what was the process in upskilling your people for them to contribute and compete at par with what, you, what the same standard was.
3: Okay, we're going to go a bit technical here. Let's go. Okay.
1: It's a tech yeah, startup so, podcast. So
3: let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the strategy here was really, um, because if you're going to upskill people, right, you gotta you got to minimize the amount of skill that you need to upskill them on so that they can deliver great work. So that is the strategy we played. So what we did was we chose a stack that... Okay, so we went with Google Cloud, something okay. called Google App Engine. This okay. allowed us to this was like a no ops philosophy. you would deploy your code this is like serverless back in the early days yeah you would deploy your code and Google Cloud would take care of all like the scaling the you know the infrastructure mm-hmm. you didn't have to know about Docker. you didn't have to know about all these other technologies on the DevOps stack. Yep. you just deploy your code and google take care uh, Google took care of everything so that's number one. We didn't need people to study how to deploy stuff. We didn't need people to study how to manage databases. We Or even a, hire a DevOps guy at all. We didn't hire I was the only one running. So, and yeah. the way I did it was I just created some scripts. And what people do to deploy is they would push their code to Bitbucket. Okay. And then they would type in Slack, deploy, then the project name. Wow. And that was it. And then it would run wow. the scripts and everything. So we automated all of this away. And I remember I had a struggle actually with it, with our with our um, team over time about this was because as they became, you know, gain more experience, they would look at their peers. They would look at the people around them. And it's like, you're studying Docker. They're learning about Kubernetes. They're learning about this new <laughs> framework. And then they look to me, Albert, when can we do that? Let's use it in a project. I'd be like, no, like, no. I would be like, no, don't do that. And then I think some people would eventually even find that as a bad thing. Or, I mean, it's debatable, right? But they they would say like, oh, we're not learning the cool stuff here because all we're doing is like this, the one little thing called Google App Engine, Python, and this specific framework that nobody else uses. And everybody else is doing like the whole stack where they're learning so many different things. Right. But the problem with learning so many different things is now you're responsible for every single thing there. Yep. And so now instead of taking like, you know, 10 minutes to deploy something, you'll have to set it up. It'll take you days. So the strategy here was really minimize the amount of, Capability or skill required to create impact, which at the end of the day was a website deployed or a web application deployed, right? So databases were all managed, hosting was all managed, bitbucket, you know, managed by by SaaS. It's not like host your own Git server or go on prem. Good luck. Yeah, yeah, like that. (laughs) We push ourselves to no ops as much as possible. We didn't even run SQL because. You know you'd have to run backups on those you'd have to manage the databases you'd right. have to we we chose a managed database um this was mm-hmm. data store at that time, which was actually um not very many people used it but what yes. what's great yeah. about it was that you used it and then it just worked so mm-hmm. it was boring from a dev perspective to be honest, well, but yeah. that minimized your time to impact and we were able to deliver value
1: at lesser time and and that's true because I remember now in chat h. So we, chatbots were always going to be an addition to whatever stack somebody else does. And it was so hard because banks did on-prem. Some were not on the cloud. They had different things. So we, I, I always had to upskill my team to learn a new stack and try to figure out with whatever stack we were doing. So we were an API maker more than a, compa- a chatbot company, to be honest, because this, the chatbot stack was very easy to do. It was templated already. But making it work to whatever that company stack was, it was oh, a right? But one thing that I totally agree with you and what you guys did is that in, if you're trying to win, especially in the startup game, people want to be everything. They want to be the next super app. They, they want to be the next whatever. But sometimes what it takes to really create impact and actually win and and, and have longevity is to go narrow and go deep. Right. Because when you do that, you become the expert. And in in an ecosystem that thrives, there's multiple experts on certain things. And it's not zero sum. There's more than enough, uh, room for a market for several players to have narrow expertise. And there's still more than enough fish for everyone to thrive in. And that's what I want to find out from Dave's Whitebeard, right? So Albert's doing all these automations and whatnot. But man, dev, I mean, dev shops, again, can be cutthroat because some people just, uh, you know, price their shit terribly and they just do it. But how did you position and how did you do biz dev at that point? Because you want to have, yes, there's going to be retainers, but at the end of the day, you have to have, you got to keep everything afloat for this to grow. How did you guys do that?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, just... A couple of points, I would say. Number one was we just created culture, right? I think we created a really strong culture for the company. And, and we invested heavily in that. And we knew that our team would be one of the pillars of success, you know, that that it would require, like, especially going to product, we just knew early on, we have to invest in our team, and we have to build a a solid team. And so we really invested in that, you know. And I think that that helped us sort of manage the, the churn, you know, of, of just, we didn't have a lot of employees leaving us. And I, and I don't remember churn rates from early, but they were incredibly low. Like we just really kept people happy and did, did things that were fun and enjoyable. And I mean, our salaries were pretty low. Like they were not, they were not bank. Um, but you know, the market has changed and and that has changed a lot since when we were starting. That being said, in terms of biz dev, I think one of the focal points that that we just had was, let's just get ourselves out there, you know, and, and we had to just put ourselves out there. So we joined a, a ton of events at the time, you know, we were everywhere, we were trying to do everything, we were just showing up to things and being present, you know, so actually sort of, I won't, I won't name names, um, mm-hmm. due to confidentiality stuff. <laughs> but one of the big things that came out of Geeks on the Beach was we, we, Albert and I, became known as like tech hosts, right? Like tech event hosts. And, you know, because, and and we loved Geeks on a Beach. We did it. Because we just believed in it, you know, we weren't getting paid. It was just we believed in it, and you know, we backed up the tech and built all the websites and stuff like that mm-hmm. because we just we thought this is part of building an ecosystem. And you know, we would still, I think, I would at least do it again. I'm sure Albert would as well.
1: Tina, but we ended shout up being, out to you wherever you are. It's so yeah, fun. exactly. Huge shout out, Tina.
3: I think um, the great. I think I got paid somehow, but not that oh, good, for you. good. I think for you. she gave me um, some money or food. At least I think. Yeah, I, I mean, re- definitely.
0: Like, we didn't have to buy our tickets and stuff like that, you know. Oh, yeah. So we were taken care of. We were taken care of. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Tina. We, we, um, I look forward to having more geeks on the beaches again. Um, but anyway, that's another that's another side topic and hustle. Mm-hmm. We we were invited to host uh, a specific event that was sponsored by by Smart and it was related to data and open data in the Philippines and so Albert and I showed up and you know we didn't even know how to get paid for that like that's how that's how little we knew about doing tech events we, we and paid, hosting
3: we paid for ourselves Dave yeah like, we did the reimbursement that we got from that like was less than what we actually paid for to actually host so we essentially yeah we paid. To, to host this to host. <laughs> event. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, I remember we were just excited, like honestly, even things like that, we frankly just didn't care because it was sort of biz dev and it was just getting our names out there and, and connecting with people, whether we could hire them or whether we could do business with them, et cetera. Like this is just what we were doing. And so we focused on, on doing that. And I would say we just hustled. And so one at this event, um, I'll, I'll never forget it. But they, it was like an open data hackathon, and they were actually using PhilJeps data, right? So what? purchasing data of the Philippines, yeah. And so if you can imagine, like imagine all of the purchasing data from the national government level in the Philippines. That's a huge amount of transactions, right? Because we're talking everything from toilet paper to to bigger, you know, computers, equipment, like everything in between. Rose as well. Yeah. Roads. Yeah. Road yeah. projects. Like everything is, in, it goes through field jobs, Um and yep. shouldn't go through field jobs. I support this. Right. Um, <laughs> and so we are the hosts. And so they sort of brief us on this and we get to the part where we're, we've like, we've hyped up the audience. The hackers are like ready to go. They're ready to get into it. And we're like, okay. And now to get access to the data, um, wh- where do they get the data? And we like look over at the team and the team's like, Oh, okay. We're going to put a Dropbox link up. And we're like, oh, we're, oh, uh, you, you're gonna download the data on Dropbox. <laughs> Wait, there's no API? No, there's no API. <laughs> no, there's no API. And so no, they I mean,
3: actually call that the API. That's the oh, API. Yeah, like, that's wow. the
0: API. And we were like, that's that's not an API. Um, like, Guys, we get you. You know. And so we're trying to like manage <laughs> expectations because now we have all these hackers and developers who are like looking at us
3: like. Yeah. you told well, us no, this was not. a hackathon but where's they the were api complaining like... that the 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 internet was not working so well because yeah 150 yes. hackers in the room oh and they were like all god. right form yeah. a line bring your own usb your <laughs> data. we are not i'm
0: we are not exaggerating this is literally oh and we're god. like we felt as the host this is now our responsibility <laughs> right because we're like oh my god this hackathon is going to be a disaster like people are going to oh. boycott and they're just going to walk out you know like i I was like, man, if I was here, I'd leave. You know, I don't want the data on the USB, right? Like, and so we're like, oh my gosh, wait, we thought you had an API. And and you know, we talked to like all the people and they're like, no, we don't have an API. But you know, you have to talk to this person. And and this is like the decision maker. And so biz dev, I, I was like, okay. And so I walk up to this individual mm-hmm. and I'm like, hey, you don't have an API? Like, you really need an API. And he's like, he just looks at me, and I, I will never forget this, right? This is pricing 101. He looks at me, and he's like, you can build me an API? And I was like, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think so. You know, I was like, I haven't seen the system, but in general, yes, like, we can build APIs. That's what we do. You know, we're software. Have you not heard of us? We're synth, right? <laughs> and um, and he's like, okay, so yes, and yes. Okay, how much will it be? And I was like, oh, well, let, you know, let me get back to you. Let me look at the system. And he's like, no, 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 no tell me right now, how much is it going to be? And I'm like, well, I, I don't, I I haven't looked at this, you know, I'm trying to like stall now. And he's like, no, no, give me the number. And I'm like, and I want to say, I said like 750,000 pesos. Cause I was just like, I don't know. Um, okay. Maybe I don't know what this is going to look like, but yeah, I'll just throw a number out. And so he's like, okay, great. Can you start on Monday? And I was like, are you serious? You know? And he was like, yes, I am not kidding. And I was like, okay. And he's like, well, we'll have to work out the contracts and all of that, but you know, you can start on this on Monday. And I was like, uh, okay. And I mean, at the time that was a relatively big deal for Sim, yeah, right? Like in terms the of deal
3: size deal for them.
0: Yeah. I think that was probably our biggest like historic deal to date. And so like part of me was excited. And then mm-hmm. part of me was like, did I just really underprice this? Because I think I should have said like, Six six more figures, or you know, I should have said I should have added a few zeros here. Right. Um. But I was like, okay, look, we got a big deal, and so I went back to Albert, and I was like, dude, I we we just closed this, right? (laughs) Like, we were excited, and and you know, we went back on stage and we couldn't say anything, but we were like, there might be an API soon. Um. (laughs) Just just hang in there, guys. But yeah, yeah. So I mean, we did this hackathon, but I think that in terms of biz dev, that was one of the big things. We just went out and showed up and talked with people. And, you know, um, kind of philosophy of Steve Blank, right? Like you got to get out of the building. So we yes. definitely just
1: got out of the building. Exactly. And by showing up, and again, every single networking event, whatever that is, there's always someone in pain there. What you need <laughs> to get true. out of is remove the fluff and ask them, well, how can I be valuable to you? Sometimes it's not about asking. It's like get, give them help. Do you need to connect? Someone just doing those or planting those little seeds will eventually blossom, and then it will just come back to you, right? Not and not. It's not about asking for what they can give to you now, but how can you be valuable to people? And goodwill always comes back. And several things I then want to uh, talk about before we take our last break is that okay? You you hustled and all that, but I'm pretty sure there's near death experiences. Oh, I was What's wondering, that? like, when are when are we gonna talk about like, are here now? now <laughs> what died, were those like, like and oh, what, how did you survive? Uh, okay, so <laughs> I, I think CEO's job. I can say it, but this is CEO's job. <laughs> the bucks up to you, Dave.
0: There you um, go. Yeah, no, there were there were a few, right? Like there were definitely a few. Um, you know, the early years there were there were quite a few of of just trying to make it and and trying to get through. Um, but the numbers weren't as big. But I think in terms of of like real near death experiences, I want to say it was twenty seventeen. You know, so this year. One five- of our. Yeah. So this is like we're about 5 or 6 years old. We were relatively, you know, big in in terms of team size, we had closed a number of contracts um that were big, right? Like bigger contracts. And then those all sort of wrapped up um, you know, around 2016 and 2017 and we delivered we delivered on those things, but there weren't new contracts coming in, you know, from right. this from this client anymore. Um, so a huge Brown. Pareto principle, right? This was like eighty percent of our revenue came from twenty percent of our clients, and this one client was probably seventy five percent of that, right? So suddenly seventy five percent of our revenue stream dried up. And we were like, whoa, what do we do? And so we were hustling and we were trying to get deals, but cash flow was killing us. And we yeah, we couldn't make payroll. Like we literally could not make payroll. And so we were having those type of meetings with our team and sitting them down. And it wasn't like one payroll, it was subsequent payrolls for a good six months, like solid, and then still interspersed even after that. And so we were trying to figure out what to do, you know, and, and I think this was some of the biggest lessons that I learned of just carrying this pain. But you know, I think in hindsight mistakes that we made, we were incredibly honest and transparent with our team about what had happened, but we weren't honest and transparent soon enough. Like we should have been transparent and honest way sooner than when we were. It was kind of like the building was on fire and then we were like, okay, we got to have all hands. And now we're going to tell you that the building's on fire. And we want you to know that we still believe we're still pushing hard, but we want you to be to know that you're. Like you're going to be going through this pain for a while. If you stick around, we want to help you. Um, if you want to go get other jobs, like we will be, we will help you find those jobs. We will help you land those jobs. We will personally seek out the founders, the team members um, there to get you positioned and, and safe um, if that's what you need to do. And so we had that meeting with the team. I don't remember percentages or numbers, but a, a decent chunk of our team decided, yeah, they, they wanted to go. You know they they needed more stability and you know I yeah, hold nothing fair. against them right mm-hmm. like that was totally fair and and honestly like you know I, I would say internally I definitely felt like a failure you know like this was my job how do we get here how do how do we do this and so we were hustling like we were taking almost any deal even if it didn't make sense um, just to get our cash flow up you know but in, at the same time those deals also led to even more painful AR problems you know because when you're sort of lowering your standards on the deal acceptance, you do tend to get into some deals with, um, you know, just that probably aren't going to pay in the end. And so it was, it was a huge challenge. Um, We had a tumultuous ride through that season. Um, We also like, we were, we were behind on our government payments. I mean, like we had incredible problems to solve Mm -hmm. and we were still like We're going to climb out of this. We're going to get out of this hole. And towards the end of that year, I called my dad and I was like, dad, um, I need to borrow. I need to borrow. Like it was about 2 million pesos. You know, I was like, I need to borrow 2 million pesos or like I can't make, you know, we can't make. Yeah, we can't make like payroll and, you know, all of this, it's already been hard. We can't make 13th month pay. It was like, I'm just gonna, you know, it was was either like we closed down or, you know, I borrowed money. And so my dad is just a great guy and and my mom as well, you know, and they said, okay, you know, we believe in you. And honestly, they gave it without even expecting it to be paid back. You know, I always wanted um, to pay them back. And, you know, it was only... I want to say 2019 or 2020, around when the pandemic hit, that we were oh. able to start paying back That's my parents, and and even then, um, you know, they were still they were so great about it, you know. But I, like literally had to get bailed out by my parents, and um, yeah. but we did make it through. Um, we were able to you know find new deals, close new close new accounts, um, find new ways of doing business. My my heart goes out to the team members who did stay with us because man, they believed in what we were doing. They believed in us as as individuals and as people. When yeah, if you looked at reality, it would tell you to jump off, um. But they believed in us, and I have the hugest appreciation for those um, those team members who did stay with us. For the ones who left, I also have just such gratitude for them because they were so gracious. They were so kind. They are still friends. You know, we still talk and. They they, They don't hold it against us, you know, and, and we, we righted all of our wrongs, you know, like we did all of our back pays. Um, we got everything back in order, like in terms of government payments, but it took us years, you know, it really took us years. I would say until 2019, we were just like in rebuilding mode and, Uh you know, we had to we were cutting costs. We were saving money. Um, we were trying to figure out how do we how do we look for more clients. Um, so, yeah, that was probably one of the hardest uh, <laughs> or the deepest trenches that
1: that we went into. That is amazing. And that requires a lot of grit. But more than anything, it requires a great relationship for you guys to pull through because a lot of teams also implode through that. And that's my last question. During that span, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the co-founders. What were those conversations like? Because if you weren't in it, nobody will be. That's when you're going to be tested the most. But can you just talk about how you guys pulled it out as co-founders? Because at the end of the day, more than anything, you understand the pain. You understand the cold, hard truth. And you're the only one who can get you guys out of that rut. What were those conversations like?
3: I don't remember. I feel like my brain repressed them already. (laughs) (laughs) Selective oh. memory right there. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at like, this was a really hard time. Like, mm-hmm. you're looking at how can you look people in the eye when yeah. you haven't paid their government PhilHealth, oh, SSS, BugEB contributions for a couple of months already because you were trying to hope that the next AR, you could pay <laughs> like three months.
4: Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it
3: becomes four months and then five months. Before you know it, you have to come clean to like seven months, eight months of you haven't paid it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah i i it was it was very stressful i think more stressful to dave than than me but I was like trying to figure out like how to borrow money from my dad how to borrow money from his friends
4: mm-hmm.
3: trying to like live another day
4: yeah
3: yeah yeah <laughs> You know, I think definitely,
0: I would say I probably repressed a lot of this and had to go through therapy um, to, yeah. to unlock a, a lot of the things that that did sort of change. But I do remember, I remember a couple of early conversations. And even during my corporate career, we had done some retrenching, right? Um, just because of like economic factors and, right. and business changes. And I remember that being one of the hardest things that I, that I had ever done, right? And I was like the, the lead of a department and I had to reduce my team size by 25%, you know, and so it was like, man, this is so hard. This is such a hard thing. So I remember one thing that we did talk about was a question that we just sort of asked each other. And And, look, I would say that part of our culture has always been to be very transparent and very open about almost everything within the company. You know we we are an extremely transparent company, and with that, we are extremely like honest with each other and we, and we don't hold back. Like we just tell the truth, um, even if it's hard, even if it's painful. And so I remember one conversation with Dan, myself, and Albert, and we all just looked at each other and we just said, "Do, do we still believe?" You know, like, do do we fundamentally just still believe that we are going to do this and we want to do this and, and okay, do we believe, you know? And so we talked about that and we all sort of had our answers and it was, it was unanimous yeses, but then we had to then say, okay, we believe and that's good, but what do we do now and who's going to do what to get us out of this and who's going to be responsible for this and who's going to be responsible for that? And then we had to have you know that second layer of questioning because it's like okay believing is kind of easy it's like yeah I still believe but then it's like okay so what are you gonna do about it what are you gonna do with your beliefs and that's where it it was like okay we really came clean and we said okay this is what I'm gonna do this is what I'm gonna do this is what I'm gonna do okay this is this is our game plan what's our action plan and then yeah as Albert said we had to go to the team you know and and I think fundamentally we were very honest with them you know we told them this is how much money's in our bank account right now and so you know we're not going to lie we're going to tell you as soon as we can before we know are we going to make it to payday are we going to make you know can we release 20% of your salary 50% you know 80% 100% we're going to let you know we're going to be very honest with you where we are at and we're going to tell you ahead of time um, as soon as we know And as Albert mentioned, yeah, we were banking on like a lot of ARs. We were like, okay, hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, when can you pay? When can you pay? This is overdue. When can you pay? This is overdue. Right. And and so much of our life was doing that. But then it was also looking for new business. Like, where do we go to find new business? And so I think as just co-founders, man, one of the most vital things is that you can just you have to be honest. You have to have to have to be honest with each other. And... Don't bullshit. You know, just if you're if you're not in it, right? Like if Albert had said, nah, I don't believe, you know, or if he said, Yeah, I believe, but man, I don't wanna do this, then we would have had to say, like, okay. We gotta, we gotta close this down. We gotta change it. We have to, we have to look at this, you know? And I think that that is a question that has stayed with us. Um, it's something that we do sort of sync up with each other on like an annual basis. You know, we take a break as a company and usually the co-founders, um, you know, pandemic and typhoon (laughs) um, have prevented some of this, but the co-founders try to sit down over the holiday break and we really just talk to each other like, okay. Do we still believe? Are we happy doing what we're doing? What do we want to change? What are we happy with? You know, what's going well? What's, what's not working? We're very big on retrospectives and, and that sort of introspection. And so I would just say, you know, to, to other co-founders and, and founders and entrepreneurs out there, you just have to be honest. And again, I think I know that. Yeah, that I'm very lucky um, to have two great co-founders and to have been able to work with them for so long, you know, to to be able to look back at sort of the last 12 years and say, like, we've collaborated and worked together and we haven't fallen apart. We haven't imploded, um, you know, and we made it through these types of crisis together.
1: That is amazing. All right. Now, let's take our last break. And when we come back, let's now talk about the lessons you've learned and how you turned the corner and get out of this rut. And of course, give us a sneak peek of the new thing that you guys are going to be watching. Well, let's talk about that more after the break. has you covered for payroll, BIR, SSS, and taxes—all the stuff that no founder loves to do. So let Sprout handle the busy work and say goodbye to lines and tax-based stress. All this for as low as five thousand pesos. Again, that's just five thousand pesos all in for your payroll and HR needs. So visit Sprout.EH Payroll-Starter-Monthly-5K, or again, just click the link in the description box of this episode to elevate your Last year, Uno Bank was recognized by the Asia Banking and Finance Awards and bagged the title Open Banking Initiative of the Year due to the success of its partnership with Gcash, one of the Philippines' leading mobile wallet platforms. And with the Uno mobile app, you can access a hashtag Uno Ready savings account and enjoy daily interest crediting. Whether hashtag UnoEarn or hashtag Uno boost time deposit accounts, you can enjoy a high interest rate of up to 6.5% per annum. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn And we're back from a break. We are still with Dave and Albert again. Told us such amazing stories. This is what OGs give you. If you're a young startup founder, welcome to the club. But inevitably, somehow, some way, startup life will punch you in the face, and you will come to terms with these experiences. If there's a shared pain we all feel, this is all just, you know, just a matter of oh, how did you get, how did you have your near-death experience, and you're lucky. If you actually made it out alive, because a lot don't make it. I've had that experience where I actually didn't make it out alive. I'm on my third startup now. Imagine you're, you're still doing the same startup from when I met you, and I'm already on my third. I had a, a big loss. I got an okay win, and now I'm trying to shoot for the stars again. And that's my question now. You, when you ask yourself, are you in every end of the year, how do you find a way to still love what you do? if you've been in it so long? Because again, me, there's this new fire. There's this new problem because I'm now in my third. And it's it's basically, I'm carrying over all these lessons that I've had, but it's a totally different problem I'm trying to solve. But for you guys for doing it so long, longevity is rare in the startup game. How did you still find ways to fall in love and still have that same passion since day one? Or were there ups and downs and you just found a way to fall in love with with Simp all over again? What was that like?
3: I can take this on. I think that's actually a false assumption that we're still doing the same thing. Mm. Because remember, yeah, we still are a dev shop. Okay. But what actually keeps us going are the many startups or products that we try on the side. Got it. So, yeah, you're on your third startup, right? We're on our 20th, man. Like, <laughs> Wow. Like, <laughs> and 90% of those are like failures, yeah. like we've we sunk in millions in like value on those and, and they just don't work out mm-hmm. but this same thing this uh the the organization the team that we've been able to build mm-hmm. we were able to configure it in such a way that we can primarily do services for our revenue pay okay. the bills you know stay salaries stay afloat and at the same time, we have this engine that churns out different ideas, right? And Got obviously, it. all these ideas that we churn out, we're excited about them, and then they don't work out, and then we move <laughs> on to the next one. So for the past 12 years, we've tried so many, and we're still going on. Nice. And so, yeah, it we've been doing different things internally, launching different things. So I guess that's what keeps us going. And every year, we ask questions to ourselves about like whether we still want to do this. That question is actually not about whether we want to continue SIMF, but it's more of like, do we want to continue this dev shop mm. configuration? Because if we actually say, no, we don't want to do this, what it actually means is that let's disband SYNF, but we're still going to partner up with each other, probably raise some VC somewhere, right? And just go on product. That's actually the other side of the fence that Got we always it. talk about um, every time. And we for me i don't know maybe if you can share yours but mm-hmm. for me it always comes down to me looking at the team that we built and i go like how how much time would it actually take me to build this kind of amazing team again right. and mm-hmm. i think like in my mind it's like no no i'm not going to i'm not going to i'm not going to throw away the team yeah
1: because it's in a million
3: yeah and so i mean there's also the argument right of like okay if you do raise vc funding you can just hire everyone you want um but i don't know i this team cliché or i don't know if it's cliché or against best practices but i i do feel strong like family to this team yeah. so yeah. i really love waking up and working with this team that we have so far and so yeah that's what's re- that's why it's really really hard mm-hmm. uh to say no and at the same time it's what's really really you know inspiring and exciting for me
1: is to continue working with this team it's amazing all right now uh, my question is Services and products, again, coming from having to do both, require a different type of founder skills, team, and execution. You said you tried twenty, right? What were the biggest learnings there, and what were these? What can you give us an idea on those type of products you we were actually doing? Because again, just pick a game, e-commerce, SaaS, whatever, right? And there's so many things, but it requires a dynamically different approach. To do that in service and product, at least, because I I tried to do it in chatbot. Mm. When I tried doing product, I real and I didn't have a co-founder by the way, uh, a full-time co-founder. So it's hard because I could I didn't have anyone yeah, to bounce mm-hmm. anyone off of. And I realized we cannot make product if your team is built on jack of all trades. If we're just building APIs all the time, you need to specialize and go narrow and go deep. I just didn't have the the right team to build a product around and again it requires a different type of wiring because you're betting all in on a product which again you'll never know if you're ever going to make money on there's capex involved right what were those like for you and what were the learnings you you got along the way
4: that's a really
0: good question you know just speaking from say like a dev shop perspective i think it's really easy for us to just get an idea and go build something And like get stuck in the build trap, right? Where if we build it, they will come. And so I would say a lot of the products that that fell to the wayside over the years, that is what we did. And because it's so natural for us to sort of get into the, the, the technical details, you know, even like taking in what Albert said of our culture, like we're not DevOps. So we're not like, oh, we need the server to be optimized. But man, we can just spend like, hours building features and the design side will make it just so How beautiful and face, man, weeks, months. <laughs> right, yeah, years literally years like we could spend our lifetime doing it right? right and getting out there and talking with customers or trying to figure out is this is this a problem that people have we have struggled to learn that so i think one of the biggest lessons that that we've had is in getting our our muscles unatrophied in customer development for product. Because I agree with you. It is very different than services, right? So from a service perspective, we know how to find, you know, we I would say we generally know how to find clients. It's not even our strength, right? I would say our our true strengths are are really around our quality of dev and design skills. And and you know, we let the market come to us, right? Like that's what we've sort of done. And so I think this whole customer validation discovery journey has been something that we
3: are learning
0: and have had to learn over
3: the years got it i have something to add actually on this one Ron, because Mm -hmm. i feel like the question is a bit flawed um so for example like you're asking that you know how do you do products right um you know coming from a services background how do you how do you do products right i think you're right when you uh, like that it requires a different kind of mindset yep but I think ultimately the different kind of mindset that you need when you're building products is patience. Mm. Patience for yeah. failure. Because if you are coming from a services background, transactional or or a or a product founder-based background, the truth of the matter is you're still gonna stumble 10 times before you succeed. Exactly. Right? If you're coming from services because you got some more rewiring to do, you're probably gonna stumble 15 more times before you succeed. Mm. But the winners, I think, and the, the key here is to learn the skill of stumbling and being okay with it and getting back up quickly. So that's what we're trying, or that's what we're constantly teaching the team or internalizing ourselves that it's actually not about getting the configuration right. Mm -hmm. The first go, it's actually starting, failing, asking the team, you know, retrospectives like, okay, what did we do wrong? Oh, you know what? Our mindset's wrong. All right. Let's adjust. Mm. Stumble again. Oh, we don't have this dev. You know, we could reuse. Okay. Mm. sure. Stumble again. Or the actually problem here is that we don't have a marketer. Like we don't go out and talk to people. Okay, Stumble again. So it's actually this journey being yeah. patient of, of being able to sustain this over the years that I think is key to the some successes yeah,
1: that we have. That's amazing. And what I'm super impressed with is recency bias doesn't even affect you guys. You just keep chugging along and just all right, let's try again. Let's try this new product. Because oh, most be- will, most will stop after they get punched in the face, like, all right, I'm never going to get punched in the face again. I tasted my own blood. I'm done. Right. But you guys keep chugging along or was there even, was that, or was there a time that you also felt that way too?
3: No, I, no, I haven't felt that. Dave, have you felt that? And I have an explanation for this because oh. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Completely. Yeah. I had this one conversation with another startup founder, which he was working in corporate and then he wanted to do a startup. And then he talked with us and then, you know, he told us like, Hey, how do you do it? Like, because I'm not gonna do startups ever again, and because he, you know, he it, he put put in his savings, and I was so confused, why why won't you do it again? And then he was like, no, I, man, I'm so traumatized. Like I put in all my savings and like all gone to waste. And I was like, interesting, interesting, because I have never put in any of my savings. You see, mm-hmm. that money that we use for launching our startups, that never landed on my bank account. It was like in bank <laughs> yeah. account. And then we use our devs to run it. And so maybe the reason why we're, I'm not traumatized is because I never had to give my own money and see it get burned. Mm. It just never became my money in the first place. I never took out the profits from Simf mm-hmm. to and then burn it. It was like you know retained earnings and then we, mm-hmm. do, uh, we put into what we'll, uh, we'll do. So when it actually fails and it gets burned, the trauma is not as personal, Got right? It. So I think that's my theory.
0: I would, I would also agree because I, I think that, you know, just from a perspective of the way that I even viewed SIMP is it will build the startups, right? And so there was this strong line um, between where Dave's finances would start. And, you know, I have my own problems on my financial side, but <laughs> SIMP, like the money that went into SIMP was always like, we're just going to keep doing this. And so I do think that it created this layer of maybe abstraction or a barrier between me sort of feeling this deep personal pain. Like, man, I've poured in so much money into this and we just keep failing and wasting money more and more, right? Like I, I never, um, I've never really felt that way because I do think that Albert's point is true. I think the second thing is, and I mean, this is maybe this came, Albert and I had a call a couple of weeks ago, and it was like founders therapy, right? Like talking to each other just about how we feel and and everything. And I think one of the things that we just came, came, we concluded is like, in a sense, we're crazy. And, and I mean that not to not to um, belittle any sort of psychiatric um, or psychological conditions, right? right? But I think we're crazy in the sense that, yes, we just keep failing and getting punched in the face and we are teaching ourselves and are trying to teach our team. How to just keep getting up and taking the learnings, like taking the learning over and over and over again. And so, yes, I would say in that sense, we sort of are the crazy ones. And, you know, I'm not trying to like say I'm the OG or, you know, this isn't an ego trip, but it is like a realization that in order for you to be able to succeed and take all of the iterations and go through the things that startup founders will be required to go through, you do have to have something much deeper and much bigger that you believe in doing that when you do get punched in the face, because you will um, many times, you're still going to just get up and try again.
1: All right. Last few questions before I let you go. So you guys know, again, you have this uh, incredible grit and you're the crazy ones. But also, those 12 years will just give you wisdom and superpowers in how to operate well. Especially in terms of you know the learnings that you got, especially in, in pricing and cash flow, what were those superpowers and learnings that you now learned and uh, have have uh, applied ever since? Avoid fixed price as much as possible. So,
3: um, I mean, at least for us, that,
1: this was the source of most
3: of our problems, right? We would yeah. estimate, cost it put a margin, quote it, get a contract, and then we would say yes to all the changes. Because it was, you know, it made sense. All the change requests are always making sense. And so we had to change our business model from fixed price to like running time. Like, yeah, we will say yes to all these changes. Yes, we estimate up front, but those estimates don't hold. We'll build according to the time it takes to actually build this. And so that's, I think, fundamentally, if there's anybody running a dev shop like I would highly recommend strongly considering moving away from a fixed cost model to a
1: dynamic price like model. That. In terms of collection, because again, it's always an AR problem. <laughs> did you guys do anything different to make sure that cash flow is better? Because again, uh, the, the sad reality is 92% of Filipino businesses don't pay on time. So yeah. that shit goes round the dra- uh, just flows downward. But did you guys find a superpower doing that? So, okay.
3: Back to structuring dynamic pricing. When you're doing dynamic pricing, um, you, you're kind of forced to deliver value early mm-hmm. because you're not waiting for the finish line because there's no finish line, right? Like so you you're just doing ordering, everything. And now you got to build. So we then just establish a cycle. We're not going to build per milestone. We build based on time. Because mm-hmm. if you build per milestone, the milestone can move in time, but your payroll won't move. Your yes. payroll schedule will be the same. Yes. So by, by doing um, time billing, progress billing, no matter, like, for example, we bill every two weeks or we bill every month for whatever was consuming that month, we bill that amount. And that's it. But at the same time, the team is actually forced, strongly incentivized to actually build working software early on, mm-hmm. right? Fully working features, but less features, because it's hard to build and something that doesn't work. Got it. You're going to build me for one month. Doesn't work yet. So we have to make yeah. something that works. Limited features. I like that. It already works. Build mm-hmm. so far. You want more features? Okay. Next, you know, next month we will work on these things. So I think I mean, man, this is years of six years of pain and suffering. Yep. This is the this is the lesson. So yes. build, <laughs> dynamic
1: pricing. Progress building yeah. time, not on milestones. That is amazing. Now, in terms of managing a team. Did that also evolve through the years or at least, uh, or is that something that also was constant?
0: Well, I think managing, I think managing and leading a team are are constant challenges, you know. And I think it's something that, yes, if you're not growing um, your that's leadership skills, yeah. <laughs> um, I think if you're not growing your leadership skills, that's actually probably the riskiest thing that you could do, um, you know. So, so even like during since the beginning of the pandemic, our team size has not only doubled. But wow. we're fully remote now. We were almost 100% Cebu based prior to to the pandemic, mm-hmm. and now we are distributed throughout the Philippines, um, with nice. some like traveling, you know, at different points. Um, some being based in other countries for for seasons of life, mm-hmm. and so. Yeah. Um, leading a team in that dynamic is very different than what we used to do. You know, we used to be able to show up and talk to everyone and see everyone almost daily, you know, if not every other day and then have all hands meetings where literally we could read the faces of everyone. And now we're just on Zoom and you're trying to like squint at the small right. square and see, like, what's he thinking? Um, and he then he I mean, even look, has we his
1: con- camera on
0: yeah like we do force we do force cameras on but then our developers are smart so they started doing video loops (laughs) um so they were literally like feeding a loop in of themselves and so oh man but yeah anyway um it's great to work (laughs) with smart people it's also a challenge to lead smart people because you're like you're trying to outsmart me here Mm -hmm. but definitely like investing in culture is something that we have we have constantly done and we continue to do and we will always do. And, you know, the learnings are big because even even the other day, Albert posted about this. But one of the conversations that we were having um, is like, how do you lead a team bigger than 100 people? You know, because we're getting close to that threshold. And wow. and then, OK, what's next? 500 people, a thousand people like those are very different ways of leadership. You know, compared to the early days of SEMP when yes. we were six or ten or fifteen or twenty. You know, for example, like in the early years, we had team lunch once a week, and then Dude. honestly, like <laughs> I loved doing
4: it. a hundred. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it, not only does it get expensive, and I would say like the cost wasn't the main issue, the challenge was showing up to a restaurant being a team of thirty people <laughs> and having them be able to deal with like how do I prepare a meal for thirty. Larshan, people, you bring like, them demand. to Larshan.
1: There you go. Yeah,
0: that 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 could have worked. Um but yeah, you know, I think just like things like that, how do you scale that type of stuff? How do you continue? to um make it your culture what is your culture you know do you have snacks like the googles and the facebooks and the things like that like is that the culture or does that create entitlement or you know and and those questions are really really deep and really hard. But figuring out how you lead and investing in that is something that, yeah, it returns um, very, very good results if you can learn how to do it and you can become a big, a better leader and you can also empower your leaders. I, last
1: few questions. And this is what I wanted to ask you because I feel very strongly that we, the startup ecosystem till now is still very, very much underrepresented especially with non-Manila-based startups because I've seen amazing talent from Cebu, from Mindanao, and for the rest of the Philippines. But also I've seen the stark difference of how big the ambition can be. Because I've seen business models coming from startups from Cebu because I teach in I, 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 I'm I a mentor in Kubo and I, I get exposure to these TBIs across the country. It's like, man, these guys can do it for the rest of the region even but they only want to solve a problem in say Iloilo or Bacolod, right what's what's your take on this how come there's this big gap because to be honest there's a lot of capital being thrown around now that can be thrown to non-manila based startups but there's still a big gap of how that uh not even a gap a chasm of how that needs to be bridged what needs to happen so that that wealth can also trickle down to the rest of the country, where again we have homegrown founders. What's your take?
3: I don't have an answer to this. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll
0: I'll try to take a take. Um, one of one of the early conversations I had when I was when I was working with bringing startup weekend Cebu. Mm -hmm. into into Cebu like this was the first time right Manila had done the first pass and then Tina was like let's do this can you help and and her cousin Mark and I um, agreed to to like do the first one and you know we assembled the team and all of that and they were amazing and through that one of the conversations that I had a principle was brought up of just like you have to you have to understand physics and gravity Mm -hmm. so there will be gravitational pull Right. And Manila, if I look at the Philippine startup ecosystem, Manila has the strongest gravitational pull in a lot of areas, not just startups, but like business in general. Right. Even government. Right. The gravity of Manila is so big that what you have to think about is what what does it look like to have an ecosystem or success Within the context of that gravity. And so the gravity will pull a lot of the talent, both founders, both business people, investment, dev talent, design talent, right? It will pull a lot of the talent into its own, you know, center. And so that's one thing that I think I had to sort of come to terms with. And then second, I would just say the other side that I consider, you know, everyone. Well, idealistically, we all want to like build the next Silicon Valley or the Silicon Valley of Asia, right? Like, how many times? Silicon Valley,
1: that? they call it now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I mean, I love like there's there's Sutakil Valley here for Cebu, and there's Sinigang Valley um, for for y'all up north, and and yeah. I love that, right? Like, I love the the localization of it. And so, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but there's one Silicon Valley, and it happened to have a lot of luck, a lot of the right ingredients to build itself. And it doesn't mean that there aren't successful startup ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley, say in the United States, right? There are. There's there's Boulder in Colorado, and like tech stars, and and there's a lot of movers and shakers there. There's Austin, Austin and what's yeah. happening there. There's um, you know Miami, sort of with the Web3 and the crypto space coming online. Now, I'm not saying that you can't. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is this unrepeatable thing but i also think we have to come to terms with what can we build in this ecosystem and what does success look like for us here and here and now and yeah. what is that so you know i would just say that i think manila will always be sort of the startup hub of yeah. the philippines you know and if i look at southeast asia I would probably say that Singapore, um, or KL would likely be the choice, you know, there. Mm. Now I, you know, there's, we could all fight till, till we're done. Like what country <laughs> should have it? Is it Indonesia or Singapore right, right. or Malaysia or, or the Philippines or like who's the best home for startups? Right. But I don't think that it is a zero sum game, but I do think what we have to realize is that there will be gravity, um, that each of these sort of hubs will affect one another. Absolutely. All right. But
3: let, Ron, let's talk about this because I think mm-hmm. I have a partial thought. I don't have a full thought but okay. I want to actually let's have this conversation. Like, let's talk. Yeah. I don't think it's safe to have big ambition in the Philippines. Why like, so? I, I don't know if you somebody feels safe or maybe that's just my trauma speaking. right? It is too. Because um, you'll be labeled as arrogant or mayabang. Yeah, I mean, here in Cebu, we have something called the term Nanning. Naning. Um, nanning. is like, it's short for Nanning Kamot, which is basically a label put on people. It has a negative connotation. Mm. It's labeled upon people who are trying hard. Like when you study a lot, your friends will call you Nanning. And that's a negative connotation. Uh... Right? I feel like maybe it's a Filipino thing that it's the been ingrained it. that. Yeah. That the majority, mediocrity, chilling is cool. Trying hard is not so cool. Dreaming big, yeah. you know, like Yabba. Know, <laughs> why is it like that? Why right. is it like that? And because you see it, and then maybe because a lot of people like I think I've seen a lot of people mm. build stuff in secret, mm. um, secret ambitions, secret big dreams. Not a mm. lot of putting it out there, being vulnerable. See why? Why? Why does it feel vulnerable to say yeah. out your stuff? So.
1: I that's I, I read an mind. article I read an article about this uh, and I'll put this in the show notes that I forgot the number but I think 90 plus percent of Filipinos don't have a dream they don't have ambition so when you see someone rare oh I want to be the next whatever I want to have a startup because you're so out of the norm and this was done by Prim Paypon to shout out again I'll put that in the show notes uh, I can send it to you after the recording that it's it's mindset. For us, our channel of showing that ambition and showing that we want to solve a problem is startups. But if you are rare, if you're one of the few, or again, you're a contrarian by default, you will always look like a naninkamot. And it's important that all of us naninkamots actually build that ecosystem. Because when you feel that tribe, that you see that you belong, that, hey, this is not alien apparently, I'm just in the wrong circle, we are actually the ones that are going to solve the problems and, you know, do well for whatever we're trying to do, then you'll feel empowered. Because that's what I feel so sadly about when there is this ambitious guy somewhere in the random town in the Philippines, but he's surrounded by crabs. And when that guy, again, gets influenced too much, then we just lost another chance of success for this country. So it's sad. But again, we can get it out. So again, this, uh, we'll talk about this in your podcast because you will have a podcast, of course, <laughs> right? But before we talk about your podcast, one last question here. If I lent you the keys to the time machine and go, you guys all go all the way back to 2012 and give advice to a young Albert and a young Dave, what would, what advice would you guys give yourself?
3: What are you telling? This yourself? is except like buy Bitcoin, right? Okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's <too. laughs>
3: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. I would say because this is a painful lesson that I had to learn mm-hmm. later that I now apply very much and leverage a lot. Mm-hmm. Trust your team. Got it. Trust them as much as you can. Mm. Be transparent with them as much as you can. You will go more right with that and less wrong with that stance. So yeah, that's that's the painful lesson that I had to learn like many, many, many years down the road. Mm-hmm. Being close, hold things closer versus like being very open. I would say the default to being very open versus holding things close. That's
1: amazing. Dave? You know, I think
0: maybe just because of what we talked about, I would I would tell myself to not hold back, you know, like still dream big and and really constantly remind myself of the, of the dream and of the bigness or the vastness of it. Because I, I do think that even at the end of the day, we've been sort of successful, but one of the realizations that Albert and I had in, in our like therapy call was we haven't been as successful as we, we thought we would be and managing that reality versus our expectation led to a feeling of shame um it led to feelings of like not accomplishing what we set out to do of feeling like in a general sense a failure right because what we were dreaming of was so big that yeah when we didn't make the mark we we just were like oh we we failed you know like and and then we you know, I would say I, I personally, um, but I think we together, we also held back our voice, you know, because it was like, OK, Dave and Albert from Geeks on a Beach fame. Right. Like, you know, why haven't we been as successful as we thought we would be back then, you know, and, and sort of dealing with that reality. And so, yeah, I think one of my realizations was just constantly going back to the bigness of that dream and reminding myself of
1: that and holding
0: on to that as tightly as possible.
1: That is amazing. Again, thank you so much, Dave and Albert. That was such an amazing episode. I wish we had more time, but we don't. But before I let you go, you guys have a podcast. that you guys are going to say. If you, if you didn't get enough of these guys and you want to, uh you know, get their point of view of how to become an entrepreneur or whatnot. What is your podcast about and where do they listen to you and uh, how do they do that?
0: Yeah, great question. So um, you know, we're we're creative geniuses. So our, our podcast is titled The Dave and Albert Show. It's it's just, you know, we we spent date we weeks, months coming up with this name. Um but yeah, we can be found on any sort of media site that you might use. So we like to say that we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, um, we're in all those places. And we are working on coming to none other than Ronster's network very soon. So we're looking forward um, to launching this here internally. And you'll be able to find us in your podcast apps and things like that once we are there. But until then, you can find us on YouTube or Facebook. That's probably the best place.
1: All right. And Albert, if they want to reach out and work with you guys in SIF, where do they go and how do they do that? Well, just send us an email, infosymph.com. All right. Thank you very much, David Albert. But before I let you follow us on whatever podcast app you're listening to, whether Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any type of podcast app. And if we did say some jargon, which I think we did, good luck to the tech side of whoever's going to make this, the show notes on this one. It's going to be the show notes on hustleshare.com. And lastly, if you want to be part of our community, it's going to be a community on Facebook, on Hustle Share Community. Just check it out. Again, David Albert, thank you very much. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Ron. All right. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace.